Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 6, 2 Kings chapters 4 and 5. Well, we stopped our last lesson in the middle of 2 Kings chapter 4 with the story of, a, of the wealthy woman from Shunem having rushed to Mount Carmel to urge Elisha to come back with her to try and revivify her dead son. Now it was through Elisha that God had first worked his miracle of grace that gave this older barren woman a son. And like Sarah, Abraham's wife, this nameless woman was reluctant to accept Elisha's promise that she would give birth. I mean, like many of us, she preferred to dismiss any such possibility because the thought of further disappointment at such a too-good-to-be-true proposition it was just too much to bear. But of course, she did conceive. And now, perhaps some 12 years later, she's quite in love with this greatly valued firstborn son of hers. Now, since this so-called Elim, which is a Hebrew term that indicates about a, an 11 or 12-year-old child, is now under the supervision of his father, he is able, actually is required, to be of use out in the fields. But one day the boy begins to complain of a severe headache. His father has him taken to his mother to be comforted, no doubt not suspecting anything serious. And within hours, the boy is dead. The mother doesn't fall apart into tears and despair, as one might kind of expect. Rather, she flies into action. She immediately takes her child's lifeless body up the stairs into Elisha's rooftop apartment, lays him on Elisha's bed, and then she tells her husband she urgently needs a donkey and an attendant. She is going to find that man of God, Elisha. Is this panic? I don't think so. Even though on the one hand, her actions don't seem rational, because by custom, she ought to be in mourning. She ought to be planning for this child's required burial before the sun sets. On the other hand, her mind is telling her that what seems final and inalterable isn't. Her husband, knowing that he has a good wife of common sense, is confused when she says she wants to go to Elisha because he says, well, but it's not Shabbat. It's not Rosh Hodesh. So why? Especially at a time like this, would she want to go to this prophet? See, this woman had already experienced the power of God over life and death by bringing forth life from that dead womb. Why would it be so unthinkable then for God to work through the same man of God he had only a little more than a decade used to bring this happy oracle of a son to this woman to now raise that same son from the dead. 
And as she races to Mount Carmel, Elisha sees her coming. And he sends his servant, Gehazi, to intercept her. Find out if something's wrong. She has no interest in dealing with anybody but Elisha. So she brushes this servant aside, she falls at the feet of the great prophet and asks him to come with her. Elisha's answer is to give Gehazi his wooden staff and send him on this 15 or 20 mile journey to see what he can do. Now the woman is having none of this. And Elisha relents and goes with her. But nonetheless, the younger and more spry, Gehazi goes ahead of his master and arrives at the deceased's bedside, whereupon he lays the staff by the boy's head. Now, what meaning this has is unclear. But apparently there was some belief that the staff itself could be a medium of divine power since it belonged to Elisha. Not surprisingly, when the boy's mother and Elisha arrived, the only report Gehazi could give is that there is no movement, there is no sign of life. Let's reread the last couple of paragraphs of chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to start reading at 32. Uh, that'll be on page 405 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Second Kings chapter 4, verse 32. When Elisha reached the house, there the child was, dead, laid on the bed. And he went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to Adonai. Then he got up on the bed and he lay on top of the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself out onto the child, its flesh began to grow warm. Then he went down and he walked around in the house a while. Went back up, stretched himself out on the child again. The child sneezed seven times and then opened his eyes. Elisha called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunamit. So he called her and when she came in he said, Pick up your son. She, she, call, uh, she entered, she fell at his feet, she prostrated herself on the floor. She picked up her son and went out. Elisha went back to Gilgal and at the time there was a famine in the land the guild prophets were sitting before him and he said to his servant put the big pot on the fire and boil some soup for the prophets now one of them went out to the field to gather vegetables and came upon a wild vine from which he filled the front of his cloak with wild squash and on returning he cut them up and put them into the stew and they didn't know what they were then they poured it out for the men to eat, but on tasting it they cried, Man of God, there's death in that pot. They couldn't eat it. But he said, Bring some flour. And then he threw it in the pot and then said, Pour it out for the people to eat. This time there was none, nothing harmful in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God twenty loaves of bread made from the barley first fruits and fresh ears of grain in his sack. Elisha said, Give this to the people to eat. His servant said, How am I to serve this to a, a hundred men? But he said, Give it to the people to eat. For Adonai says that they will eat and have some left over. So he served them and they ate and they had some left over, as Adonai had said. 
Now our modern Bible scholars, who at some level believe this story and don't discount it as pure legend, say that what really happened was that the child was not dead, but merely in a deep coma. But verse 32 directly confronts such a notion. The unequivocal statement is, the child was dead. But it's apparent from what ensues that both the grief-stricken mother and the great prophet believe this situation could be remedied. Now such is the measure of faith that we all ought to strive to acquire as followers of the God of Israel that when the utterly, ridiculously impossible confronts us, we don't lose all hope, but we take it before God. This calls to mind Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2 when she cried out, The well-fed hire themselves for bread, while those who were hungry hunger no more. The barren woman has borne seven, while the mother of many wastes away. Adonai kills and he makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. Elisha goes into the room. He shuts himself in with the child. See, this miracle is not for prying eyes. It's not meant to be a public spectacle. Knowing that life and death is exclusively in the hands of Yehoveh, Elisha begins with prayer. And then he follows a pattern that he hopes to resurrect the dead, which he saw his master Elijah do in very similar circumstances. Let me remind you of that. In 1 Kings 17, 17 through 22, it says this. A while later, the son of the woman whose house it was fell ill. His illness grew increasingly serious until his breathing stopped. She said to Eliyahu, What do you have against me, you man of God? Did you come to me just to remind me how sinful I am by killing my son? Give me your son, he said to her. Taking him from her lap, he carried him into the room upstairs where he was staying. And he laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to Adonai, Adonai, my God, have you brought also this misery on the widow I'm staying with by killing her son? He stretched himself out on the child three times. And he cried out to Adonai, Adonai, my God, please, let this child's soul come back into him. Adonai heard Eliyahu's cry. The child's soul came back into him, and he was revived. Elisha, therefore, lays himself on top of this boy's corpse. In fact, verse 34 says that at least part of the procedure was to warm the boy's flesh. But apparently, nothing happened immediately. As after a while, he got up, he walked around the room a little bit, perhaps even going down to the main house under his rooftop apartment, but then he returned to do it all again. Now last week, I asked the question, what we ought to do when an action or 
decision is needed and it can't be deferred. But we have no clear direction, no instruction yet from God. See, how often we've all prayed to God, give us direction. And frankly, most of the time, there seems to be a little more than silence. And that may be because Jehovah wants us to realize that the answers to almost all of our questions have been answered before. And they lie in the patterns and the principles established in His written Word to us. All we have to do is look at it. See, we've talked endlessly in Torah class about God patterns. About how the Lord establishes patterns for His universe to operate. Even about how He operates within identifiable patterns. And since the Bible is His word to us, His followers, and since we can begin to see these patterns exposed and come alive when we read His word, then it's only logical that we should learn them and then rely upon them in faith. It's not necessary that we have a direct personal oracle from God whenever a new challenge or a new choice arrives. Rather, we ought to pray and then act in accordance with the repeating God patterns and principles that we've learned. That, I'm confident, is exactly what Elisha did. There is no hint in these passages that beyond his prayer as an appropriate and necessary form of a unidirectional plea, petition, and worship towards God, did God then in turn reply towards Elisha with some divine oracle or instruction? But we must also recognize that God's patterns must be employed not only in faith, but in context. And the context of the miracle of the boy's resurrection from the dead is that it was accomplished through the office of an exceedingly rare and great prophet. Elijah did it, and his replacement, whom Eliyahu personally commissioned, is now able to do it, and naturally he does it in the same pattern as Elijah. Could Gehazi have achieved the same result? How about the child's pious and faithful mother? The answer is no, in both cases. Because despite their other merits, they are not these exceptional and great prophets. Our English Bibles say that the boy's flesh began to warm up from its stone-cold condition. And then he sneezed seven times. Now the sneezing, of course, is indicating that the breath of life has once again entered this boy's lungs. But why seven times? Well, first, the number seven is the ideal and divine number that lets us know that what's happening is the work of God and it's divinely ordained. But second, the rabbis are clear that it was not 
that the boy sneezed seven times. It's that Elisha performed this pattern of lying face to face upon the boy, then getting up and walking around a bit and coming back seven times. It's what scholars call verb confusion. See, the idea is that the seven times is incorrectly grammatically linked to the sneezing instead of to what it was that Elisha was doing. It makes a lot more sense that way. Now the story ends abruptly with Elisha telling his servant to call for the mother to come and pick up her revived son. Most appropriately, she fell to the floor before Elisha, prostrating herself in the awe of such a miracle of grace and mercy. She grabs up her son, exits the apartment. Verse 38 begins yet another story of miracles brought about by Elisha. Now this time, he provides food for a group of disciples who are hungry takes place at Gilgal, although this is a different one than the one that's near Bethel. This Gilgal is to the north and more near Mount Ebal. Now the situation is that there was a famine in the area, and the guild prophets who looked to him as their ultimate leader were in a particularly dire situation. These folks normally lived in the most humble of circumstances and lived a life of modesty or borderline poverty. They needed to eat and so put on a large soup kettle from which this group of prophets ate communally. However, it was mostly just water because there were no vegetables to add to it because of a famine. So some of the prophets went out foraging for wild plants, despite a bad taste, that at least offered some nutrition to stave off starvation. Well, they found something that looked like a gourd or a melon. In our Bibles, it calls it a squash. They brought it back. They cut it up. They threw it in the soup pot. Well, after it was cooked... It was ladled into bowls, and as they began to partake, one of the young prophets explains, there's death in the pot. That merely means the concoction turned out to be poisonous, because this gourd, whatever it was, was toxic. Well, Elijah's, uh, rather Elisha's solution was to add flour to the mix, and somehow that acted as an antidote. And the soup was now edible. Now what, to, what ought, I think, to astonish us even more than this miracle of God making this poisonous soup benign is that the many prophets present had such faith in the Lord that they believed that he was working through Elisha that they actually ate it. Now that's Faith. And then we immediately get a second story about food. Now it scarcely need be said that in the Bible, food is an important issue. In our time, especially inside the church, it's almost a controversial issue. In modern times, it's a proverb. 
that we are what we eat. And while we shouldn't carry that glib saying quite as far as some might, indeed we are finding that despite our highly advanced pharmaceuticals, the simple act of choosing the right foods to eat and at the same time avoiding others have an enormous effect not only on our daily well-being but also healing our bodies even in our mental outlook. Thus I encourage us all to look beyond the simple issue of the needed calories and vitamins and proteins and antioxidants and so on and grasp that we can choose to view food no differently from the heathens as merely a source to satisfy our hunger or we can view it from the biblical perspective that food has an unseen spiritual quality to it as well. That is the same Lord who created these bodies that burn food for fuel in order for us to physically survive has also ordained that for those who recognize just who He is those of us who love Him we are to accept the Lord's definition of what food for humans is and is not. That is essentially what the biblical dietary laws of Leviticus accomplish. They add the spiritual quality to food by telling us what the Father has set aside for us as food and what He has separated away from us as not food. And what, even though from a purely medical and physical perspective, the reality is the prohibited items in the Bible are actually usually edible, they're digestible, they will provide energy to power these bodies. See, I believe that just as with Elisha and the poisonous soup that was made edible by a miracle, it is the faith and trust demonstrated by God's followers that is the issue about food. It's not always about the inherent physical qualities of the items we shove into our mouths. Thus it is not necessarily so that the meat of a rabbit, a prohibited item, is inherently evil or dangerous, while the meat of a cow, a permitted item, is inherently good and healthy. It is that the true spiritual value of food comes about through sufficient trust and faith in the Lord to be obedient to His commandments concerning diet that were put there for both our physical benefit and our spiritual benefit. So while Christians have been taught all of our lives that the choice of food is strictly a matter of preference for us, in fact, 
The Bible sets up the matter of food as also involving moral choices. Why a moral choice? Because for a believer, the definition of a moral choice is to choose whether to obey the Lord's commandments or not. Well, verse 42 begins by setting up the all-important context for the next story. A man from a town in the northern kingdom brought 20 loaves of bread made from barley, not wheat. He brings them to Elisha. Uh, uh, Elisha. Barley was the first of the grain harvests of the year. So barley loaves was the standard food offering in honor of the third biblical feast, the appointed time called Bichrim, or first fruits. Now some of the rabbis say that even though it seems so, it could not have been the feast of Bichrim because the first fruits must be taken to the priests. And we don't see that happening here. Well, that simply ignores the realities of the times. When in the north, they were discouraged, if not outright prohibited, by the ruling monarchy from even visiting the temple in Jerusalem. There was also a distinct societal dislike between the northerners, Israel, and the southerners, Judah, that had gone on since the time of Joshua. In fact, the entire reason for Eliyahu's and then Elisha's existence and mission was essentially as a kind of substitute priesthood and source of God's word for the people of the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel. But despite the government mandates and politically correct societal attitudes, there were those of the northern kingdom who sought to find ways to be as true to the Torah as they could. And so, they wanted to continue to observe the biblical feasts and the appointed times, even though, from a practical level, it was near to impossible. See, this is something that we, as modern believers, need to emulate. We need to obey God by continuing to honor His laws and commandments as best we can, considering the prohibitions that our government mandates and barriers of peer pressure that our society erects. And we also have to do what parts of the laws and commands and feasts and Sabbaths that we can do in view of the fact that there is no temple to visit. There is no priesthood to preside over it. In fact, I see such efforts as our obligation. This pious man from the north, therefore, brought his Torah-commanded first fruits offerings to the only true representative of God there was available for him, Elisha. And the members of the prophet guild that Elisha oversaw then could receive some food in the same way that the Levite priests did in the form of offerings and sacrifices. However, 20 small barley loaves 
was hardly enough for a hundred men. But what that term, one hundred men, means is that they are the representative members of their families. You see, it's not that a hundred individuals are to be fed, but one hundred of the prophet guild families are to be fed from this. Okay, Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're going to read the first 14 verses of John chapter 6 together. Sometime later, Yeshua went over to the far side of Lake Kinneret, that is Lake Tiberias, or we know it better as the Sea of Galilee. And a large crowd followed him because they had seen the miracles he had performed on the sick. And Yeshua went up into the hills and sat down there with his Talmudim, his disciples. Now the Judean festival of Pesach, Passover, was coming up. So when Yeshua looked up and saw that a large crowd was approaching, he said to Philip, Where will we be able to buy bread so that these people can eat? Now Yeshua said this to test Philip, for Yeshua himself knew what he was about to do. And Philip answered, Half a year's wages wouldn't buy enough bread for them. Each one would get only a bite. One of the disciples, Andrew, the brother of Shimon Kepha, said to him, There's a young fellow here who has five loaves of barley bread and two fish. But how far will they go among so many? And Yeshua said, Have the people sit down. Now there was a lot of grass there, so they sat down, and the number of men was about 5,000. Then Yeshua took the loaves of bread, and after making a bercha, gave to all who were sitting there and likewise with the fish as much as they wanted. And as they had eaten their, after they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather the leftover pieces so that nothing gets wasted. They gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the miracle he had performed, they said, This has to be the prophet who is supposed to come into the world. Notice all the parallels between the John 6 narrative of Christ feeding the multitudes and Elisha feeding the 100 families. First, this took place in the north of Israel in both stories. Second, this took place at Passover. Now, Passover is a generic name in the New Testament for that bundle of three springtime feasts that consists of Passover, Matzah, and Bichrim, first fruits, that occurs in rapid-fire succession. So our pious man of the north was celebrating the same feasts in going to Elisha as Christ as he sought to feed the hungry multitudes. Third, notice that it was barley bread. Makes a point out of this. Not wheat bread. 
that's the primary food item involved. Fourth, even though it is the disciples who are at the center of the action, like with Elisha's prophet guild members, their families are all to be fed as well. Fifth, just as in the story of Elisha, not only was the barley bread miraculously multiplied to feed everyone present, men, women, children, but there was enough left over to feed others or for those present to have some for later. Now, not to be a heretic, but which story is patterned after which? Is the Elisha story patterned after the Jesus story or vice versa? Well, of course the Yeshua story is patterned after the Elisha story. And beside all the evident parallels, do you know how I know for certain without having to conjecture about all this? Because of this direct statement that essentially concludes the Jesus story of feeding the multitudes. When the people saw the miracle he had performed, they said, well, this has to be the prophet who is supposed to come into the world. Why did the people suppose that Yeshua had to be the prophet? Because he had performed exactly the same miracle during the same biblical feasts as the great prophet Elisha had. Over 800 years earlier, the multiplication of the barley loaves, as reported in 2 Kings 4. Let's move on to 2 Kings 5. Nehman, commander of the king of Aram's army, was highly respected and esteemed by his master because through him Adonai had brought victory to Aram. But although he was a brave warrior, he also suffered from Surat. Now on one of their raids into Israel's territory, Aram carried away captive a little girl who became a servant for Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish my lord could go to the prophet in Shomron. He could heal his Sarat. Well, Naaman went in and told his lord, The girl from the land of Israel said such and such. And the king of Aram said, Go now, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. Well, he set out taking with him 660 pounds of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. He brought the king of Israel the letter which said, When this letter reaches you, you will see that I have sent my servant Naaman with to you so that you can heal his Sarat. And when the king of Israel finished reading the letter, he tore his clothes. Am I God? Able to kill and make alive, he asked, so that he sends me, a man, to heal of Sarat? You can see that he's only seeking an excuse to quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why did you tear your clothes? Just have him come to me. And he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him who said, Go, bathe in the Yarden, Jordan, seven times. Your skin will become as it was, and you will be clean. But Naaman became angry and left, saying, Here now, I thought for certain that he would come out personally. That he would stand and call in the name of Adonai God and wave his hand over the diseased place. And thus heal the person with Sarat. Aren't 
Amanah and Papar, the rivers of Damasek, Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Why can't I bathe in them and be clean? So he turned and he went off in a rage, but his servants approached him and said, My father, if the prophet had asked you to do something really difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So doesn't it make even more sense to do what he says when it's only bathe and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan as the man of God had said to do, and his skin was restored. And it became like the skin of a child, and he became clean. Then with his whole retinue, he returned to the man of God, went and stood before him and said, Well, I've learned that there is no God on all the earth except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a present from your servant. But Elisha answered, As Adonai lives before whom I stand, I'll not accept it. And despite his urging him to take it, he refused. And Naaman said, If you won't take it, then please let your servant be given as much earth as two mules can carry, because from now on your servant will offer neither burnt offerings nor sacrifices to other gods, but only to Adonai. Accept this, and may Adonai forgive your servant for it when my master goes into the temple of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon. When I bow down, may Adonai forgive your servant for this. Elisha said to him, Go in peace. Now Naaman had gone only a short distance from him when Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, Here, my master's made it easy on this Arami, Naaman, by not accepting from him what he bought what he brought. Now as Adonai lives, I'll run after him and at least get something from him. So Gehazi hurried off after Naaman and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and asked, is everything alright? Yes, he replied, my master sent me with this message. Two young men have just now come to me, guild prophets from the hills of Ephraim. Would you be kind enough to give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes? By all means, take two talents, said Naaman, pressing him. He tied up the two talents of silver in two bags and gave them with the two changes of clothes to two of his servants who carried them ahead of Gehazi. And on reaching the hill, he took the bags from them and put them away in the house. And then he let the men go and they left. And he went and stood before his master. Elisha asked, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant hasn't gone anywhere, he said. Elisha said to him, Wasn't my heart there with you when the man left his chariot to meet you? Is this a time to receive silver and clothing and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female slaves? Therefore, Naaman's Sarat will cling to you and to your descendants forever. He left Elisha's presence with Zarat as white as snow. The next story about Elisha would have caused his fame to spread well beyond the boundaries of Israel and Judah. See, because this miracle involved not a Hebrew, but essentially a foreign outsider who was really an enemy. Naaman was a revered and respected chief of the Aramean army, meaning the Syrian army. It cannot be overlooked that verse 1 even states that it was Yehovah 
who brought about Aram's victory over Israel by using Neman. See, the important God principle that is set down for us is that the Lord doesn't just operate within the lives of believers. He affects the history of mankind throughout the world because He is the God of all mankind. Now let me set the stage for this story so that we can get the most from it. King Ahav of Israel had some years earlier formed an uneasy alliance with Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Aram, king of Syria. But with the passing of time, Ben-Hadad's son wanted free of being a vassal to Israel, and he rebelled. He seized the city of Ramot Gilead in the Transjordan, and so King Ahav led his army to go and try to take it back. In the process, Israel was soundly defeated and King Ahav was killed. Back and forth, the two kingdoms of Syria and Israel went at one another. One gaining an upper hand for a while and then the other one. Well, at the time of our story, Syria was now the more dominant than Israel. And while there wasn't outright war going on, nor was there a quiet peace, there, was a, there were hostile skirmishes. There were raids into one another's territories that were traded back and forth on a near continual basis. And it seems that in one of these raids into Israel by Syria, they captured some Hebrews for slaves, perhaps one of the most common purposes for ancients to attack one another. And among those slaves taken was a young Hebrew girl who wound up as a house servant in Naaman's home. Well, one day, this little girl expresses concern for her master to his wife. And the Israelite child seemed genuinely concerned for Naaman. And as our story unfolds, we see that indeed, Naaman must have been a, a decent man who treated his slaves well and thus won their affections. Now she says that she wishes that Naaman could go see the great prophet because only this prophet in Israel could cure him of his sarat. Now while many English translations use the word leprosy to translate sarat, that is not only highly unlikely as formal leprosy that's now called Hansen's disease was unknown in that era and in that location, it takes us down a rabbit trail in getting caught up in identifying the exact medical term for the skin condition that he might have been suffering. However, the issue of Surat is not the kind of skin condition, but rather it's about the cause. And anytime we see the word Surat, it is speaking of a visible skin disease that is caused by an inner spiritual condition of ritual uncleanness, sin, or, or both. In other words, the Lord has caused the victim's spiritual condition that's hidden to humans, but it's exposed to God, to now become literally and symbolically exposed for the entire world to see. Naaman didn't 
catch some contagious skin disease. Since it was the God of Israel who caused it to appear, it could only be removed by the God of Israel's prophet. And this little Hebrew girl house slave knew that. Now, Naaman's skin disease was of such, dis- such concern, it was so discomforting, that he was willing to try anything to get rid of it. So he went to his king and asked for permission to go to Israel and seek out healing. The concept of a god or of a different nation having the power to heal was of no problem to the oriental mind of that era. Of course, how to access that god, now that was a different matter. And the king of Syria figured that such access would only be granted by the king of the nation who claimed that particular god. See, kings had their gods, gods had their prophets. That's how it worked, according to the ancient mindset. The king of Aram was happy to intercede for his great warrior leader, Naaman, so he prepared a a lavish gift to be presented to Yeram, king of Israel. Along with the gift was a letter that explained that the purpose of the gift was so that the king of Israel would heal the Syrian military commander. Yehoram perfectly understood that this message was not a request. It was a demand. And considering how weak of a king Yehoram was, and how at the moment the king of Aram had the upper hand, Yehoram flew into a fit of anxiety. And he wondered just exactly how he was supposed to cure this Gentile. And an enemy at that of a disease that was thought to only affect Hebrews since it was brought on by Israel's God. Well, we'll continue with this story next time.